Let us pray. Our eyes are weary, O Lord, and we pray that you may open them to see the work of your Holy Spirit in the world. Open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to hear a word from you. Amen. So let me begin today's sermon by getting us up to speed. Last week we hosted the book of Ruth. This week we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Ruth was about the journey of two normal people, Ruth and Naomi, and had a kind of everyday domestic quality to it. God doesn't make any kind of direct appearance in it. God isn't even seen. God doesn't speak. God's referred to as doing something twice, but it's kind of in the background at best. But this changes when we come to the book of Samuel, the next book in the Bible, just directly next. Although, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, you're Jewish, you'll you know, have those in different places and stuff. But follow me here. In the Bible that we have, uh, Ruth comes before First and Second Samuel. Where God's been silent in Ruth, where God's been hidden, in Samuel, God finally shows up again. God finally speaks. But when God finally says something again, it's less like the opening of a floodgate and more like a little trickle. Because the only one, really, up to this point, who can hear God speak is Samuel. And Samuel is like a miracle baby. You know, he's the son of Elkanah and Hannah, who, like so many modern families, were unable to conceive a baby. After, many, after days, months, years of heartache and prayer, they were given a son. And out of gratitude, Hannah dedicated this son, Samuel, and his life to God as a child. And, brought him, and brings him to Eli, the priest. And when Samuel's a child, he hears the voice of the Lord speak to him in a shrine at Shiloh. And at this point, it's such a surprise in the story because God's been so silent for so long. They almost don't recognize God's voice when it finally comes. And on account of this gift, when Samuel grows up, he becomes an important person. He relays divine instructions, playing an important part in uniting his people's tribes against the growing threat of their neighbors, the Philistines, who are always ready to invade and destroy his homeland and people. Under God's direction, so Samuel hears God speak, Samuel anoints Israel's first king, kind of against God's better judgment. I mean, I love that. You'll have to go back into the text and read that part. I mean, I love it. God's like, are you sure you want a king? They'll enslave you. They'll tax you, all those other things. But okay, okay, now that you want a king, Saul's the guy, okay? He's the guy. But even so, at this point, it's become clear that Saul is endangering his people with his arrogance, selfishness, and unwillingness to listen to God. So God says to Samuel that he's given up on Saul. And then he sends Samuel to find a new king. He points and says, go. 
So Samuel is the most spiritually mature guy in Israel. Dedicated by his mother to God, raised as a priest, knows all the stuff, does all the right practices. There ain't nobody with a deeper connection to the divine than Samuel. He's the only one around who can hear when God speaks. And yet, you will notice, even though he has good hearing, his sight, not so good. Samuel might hear God's voice, but he sees like any other human being sees. His holy hearing is good. You know, you figure the spidey sense tingles at all the right times. But his spiritual vision is poor. Remember, God is just over the first king Saul. Saul's done. And so God sends Samuel to anoint a new king, and he sends him to the city of Bethlehem. Hmm, I wonder if I've heard that before. To the family of a name named Jesse. Jesse, who is the grandchild of Ruth from last week's story. See, it's all connected. If you pay attention, it's all connected. It's the backwoods, it's the boonies, it's actually kind of out of the control of the king at this point. And when Samuel arrives, he arrives under the pretense that he's there to offer a sacrifice for God. I mean, Samuel doesn't lie, but he sort of just withholds information. After all, Samuel's committing treason at this point, even if it's on God's orders. He's kind of withholding that part of the truth. God doesn't say which of the sons will be king, just that the king is going to be part of Jesse's family. So the whole family is invited to this ritual, and there's a feast afterwards where, you know, they sacrifice, and then they put aside the part for the Lord, probably for Samuel, and then they have the rest, and they, they eat. And the first one who's invited, who walks in the door, is Eliab, the oldest son. You know, he probably shows up with a deer in the back of the truck that he, like, shot with a bow on the way there, you know? He's like this really masculine-type guy. And as soon as he's in the door, a light bulb goes off for Samuel. This has got to be the guy. He thinks to himself, big, athletic, good-looking, great warrior, and he's the firstborn son. He's going to be the responsible one among them all. So all it takes is one look, and Samuel thinks to himself, that guy's got to be the king. Like, just first one and walks in. Is this... We don't even need to see the rest. One glimpse at this guy, and Samuel sees the new king. But Samuel's got it all wrong. And he's no, he knows he's wrong because God tells him he's wrong. I just wish that I could have that wonderful, you know, wonderful ability to hear the same way Samuel does. Look, Samuel, God says. All you're looking at there is his height, his muscles, that square jaw of his. But this guy's in my reject pile for king. For he says, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All you humans judge by appearance. It's all surface level. But I... See below the surface. You see outward, I see inward. You see a strong sword arm, but I see a tender 
heart. So even though Samuel's the most religiously discerning person around, even though he's a master practitioner of the faith, even though he hears God's voice, he still can't see what God sees. Even someone like Samuel is prone to superficial judgment, to judge people on the surface level. And if someone like Samuel is prone to do this kind of thing, so are we. Some ways we judge by appearance are obvious. Ones that we've sort of come to believe that are wrong. Judging someone's abilities by their race, someone's motivations by their religious tradition, judging someone's abilities by gender, or their character by their sexual orientation. Most of us good, liberal-minded Canadians sort of have the sense that this kind of thing's wrong. And happily so. I mean, I think that that is absolutely a good thing. But what it says here is that even the most open-minded people, the people that can even hear God's voice, are prone to surface-level judgments, too. Personally, I felt convicted by this text. I mean, like Samuel, I've been raised in all the prayer and the tradition. I have been dedicated to the service of the Lord. And yet, despite my confidence in my own fair-mindedness, I'll be honest, when somebody comes to me wearing shabby clothes, when somebody comes to me smelling like sweat and cigarettes, or when somebody comes to me and doesn't seem very smart or educated, I make immediate assumptions. I put up my defenses. I immediately assume they are either A, going to ask me for something, they know I'm the minister, usually money, or B, have a mental illness and are going to tell me something crazy, something I'm not ready to deal with, or C, are just going to make me uncomfortable in some other way. One that I just know that's going to happen. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I know it's going to happen. Now, if somebody shows up who's First Nations, or someone's gay, or someone's transgender, name every other label like any open-minded liberal Canadian, I'll go out of my way to hold back judgment. And that's good, I think. But if somebody's fresh off the streets, it's different. Somebody obviously doesn't have money or education, or they're wearing one of those red Make America Great Again ball caps. I'm surface level all the way. I'm surface level all the way. As God says to Samuel, we humans judge by outward appearances. It's not just some of us. Even spiritual heavyweights like Samuel, even those who consider ourselves non-judgmental, we seem to be the most judgmental about judgmental people, to be honest. Those people are judgmental. Let's go and judge them harshly. So no matter who we are, we're prone to be surface-level people, even the best of it, even the best of us, even the best of us. And it's because we can't see as God sees. We can't see as God sees. 
But the good news is God sees what we can't see. And that's something that we can actually take into ourselves and learn. Our vision can actually be corrected. So even though Samuel can't see below the surface, God does. After God rejects Eliab, the oldest brother, as king, each parades in, you know, each parades in one after the other, no success. This one? No. This one? No. This one? No. Until eventually they run out of sons for Samuel to assess. Six or seven of them, depending on which part of the Bible you want to trust. I mean, there's, he either has seven sons or eight sons, but that's a matter of textual criticism for another day. The Lord, says Samuel, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel's confused because God said the candidate would be one of Jesse's sons in Jesse's household. You sure this is all of them? He asks. You sure you don't have some son squirreled away somewhere? Lo and behold, there's one more. They're missing the youngest brother, the youngest brother, David, who also happens to be the smallest. The old saying, the runt of the litter sounds about right. Well, his brothers spend their days lifting weights, training on treadmills. David's out in the field herding sheep. Even worse, though, he's sitting under the tree writing songs and reciting poetry. That's not manly at all, you know. He's the dorky younger brother that nobody really pays attention to, the one who lives his life in the shadow of his fathers and brothers, voted least likely to succeed. They didn't even consider inviting him to the meal. It wouldn't have even crossed their minds. But Samuel sends for them, and they all have to sort of stand and wait while Samuel stands, well, before they can even start dinner, and the younger son walks in. And I mean, I love this too. I, you know, I love all of this stuff, but I particularly love this part. When Sa David walks in, Samuel sees that he's, quote, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Uh, because, you know, I'll report what somebody else said about this. I won't say this. Just, David's hot, you know. <laughs> David is hot. He is handsome. Great appearance, lovely looking man, but I love how Samuel holds off from judgment this time. I'm not going to fall for the whole appearance thing again, okay? I'll just wait. I'll wait until God says something. This guy looks like he's probably the guy, but, you know. And of course, God says, this is the guy. So Samuel rises, he lays hands on David, and he anoints him king. So even though Samuel can't see below the surface, God does, and God sees David. But I mean, it's interesting, because we're like, well, don't judge a book by his cover. You can't really see somebody's character by underneath. But I think this is something that's completely different, it actually says. God not only sees him, but God sees him as someone and something. God sees him as a vessel for the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit came upon Samuel with power. God not only sees that he's a good guy, because if you read the Bible later, Samuel does all sorts of things that just, or not Samuel, 
David does all sorts of things that ain't so good. So it's not just about him being a perfect do-gooder, but God sees him as a vessel for the Holy Spirit. And when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about what we did a few weeks ago, which was we laid hands, anointed with oil, and prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon a child, my child, in baptism. We do the same thing when we baptize children. We do the same thing, at least here, when we confirm people that are baptized as children. We lay hands, we mark with the sign of the cross, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. It's because in our tradition, we are taught that anyone can be a vessel for the Holy Spirit, that appearance is not what matters, not what counts. But despite appearances, good or bad, remember David was hot, you know, but God still says that's not the appearance. The appearance thing isn't what matters. In our tradition, anyone can be a vessel for the Holy Spirit. When we lay hands in baptism, we are trusting the fact that this person can and will be a vessel for God's Holy Spirit as they grow older. God doesn't see the appearance. Even though we don't see the Holy Spirit come and flash down when we lay those hands, God sees below the surface. And I'm reminded of a story that John Buchanan, who is an American Presbyterian minister, once told about his granddaughter. Something he was reminded of when he laid his hands on her as part of that year's confirmation class, when they anointed her, laid hands, and prayed for the Holy Spirit. I don't think Rachel could have memorized enough of the catechism to pass the test, as in the teachings of the church, to memorize the teachings of the church in order to be confirmed. Rachel has Down syndrome. Rachel has Down syndrome and is a part of a group of young people who talk a lot together during the year, serving meals to the homeless, staying overnight in a homeless shelter, and experience church as a place of service and celebration in Jesus' name. For confirmation, they each wrote a statement of faith, and they brought tears to my eyes when I read them, particularly Rachel's. She is a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Despite all appearances, she is a vessel for the Holy Spirit. Where was I? Sorry. They each wrote a statement of faith, and this was Rachel's. Jesus means church for me, she wrote. Church is faith. I feel church all the time. I go to church to learn about God to worship and be thankful for Jesus. See, Rachel is one of those people 
that's lived her life judged by appearances. Being seen as a burden rather than a blessing, although last week I said, you're a burden and that's okay, but forget. <laughs> Put that to the side, burner, for this right now. Being seen as a burden, being seen as someone who actually cannot accomplish much, being seen on the surface. Rachel understands because in the community of faith that she was brought into, she understood that God sees us not by appearances, but each of us as a vessel for the Holy Spirit in the world. As people who can be Christ to one another, no matter who we are, God sees us not by our appearances, but as vehicles for the Holy Spirit. This is our identity, our baptismal identity as the people of Jesus. It's remarkably egalitarian. God sees us not by our appearances, but as vehicles for the Holy Spirit. So today, I say to you, if you are someone who has been judged by appearance, judged at the surface level, written off, Today, know that God sees you. God not only sees you for who you are, like some platitude, can't judge a book by his cover. God sees you, and God sees unlimited potential in you to be Christ to others and to be a witness to God's mercy in the world. That's who you are. And if you're like me, who has somebody who has still has trouble, despite, you know, uh, being uh, dedicated to the Lord, etc., I pray for us, simply, the gift that God might open our eyes and God might tenderize our hearts to withhold judgment and to see everyone who's sent our way as a potential vehicle, a conduit for God's spirit in order to be blessed. Because God sees us not by our appearances, but God sees us for who we truly are as potential vehicles for God's spirit. May we who can't see have our eyes opened and may we, those of you who are not seen, know you are seen by God. Amen.